All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrated his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, let's go to the Lord and ask his guidance on our time in his word. Father, we are so thankful that we have your word to guide and direct us. For it is in your word that you have revealed to us your thinking. The word is called the mind of Christ. It is through your word that we understand who you are, who we are, and who Jesus Christ is. We come to understand uh, your plans and purposes for us. We come to understand our meaning and significance in life. And it is through your word that we are able to have stability and happiness and joy, even in the midst of some of the most trying and difficult circumstances that we sometimes face. Now, Father, as we continue our study, focusing upon the ministry, the message, and the works of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that you might challenge each of us to understand these things, to be able to apply key principles in our own lives, and to understand the scope and purpose of your plans in human history. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, as I have been pointing out, is the turning point, the crisis point in Jesus' ministry to Israel. John the Baptist, who was the uh, one who was the announcer, the forerunner to the Messiah, the one who came with a distinctive message to Israel to repent, for the kingdom of heaven was at hand. He was announcing to Israel that they needed to change. They needed to refocus on what the Lord had taught in the Hebrew Scriptures in the Old Testament and to get away from the superficial legalism and the works-oriented spirituality and theology of the Pharisees. When Jesus came on the scene, Jesus' message at the beginning was the same, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When he sent out his disciples, they were sent out to go to the house of Israel and the house of Judah, and their message was, repent for the kingdom of heaven was at hand. And this builds to a climax, a climax and a confrontation between Jesus and the religious leaders, specifically the Pharisees, in chapter 12. And we have seen that this culminates in the statement by Jesus in Matthew chapter 12, verses uh, 31 and 32, related to the topic of this sin that is unforgivable or the unpardonable sin. And we looked at this last time, and I set this within the context of Jesus' ministry, that this reaches this crisis point. It's now or never. There are no do-overs, no more chances. You've had more opportunities to this point than, than anyone, and this is it. Your rejection of me by identifying the source of my power as Satan rather than the Holy Spirit has brought you to a crisis point. This is the last chance, and the kingdom now is taken from you and will not come into existence. 
So this is the last chance, as we see, and it's going to conclude when we get to verse verse 50 with the statement that whosoever will may come, whereas the focus up to this point has been on taking the gospel, the good news of the kingdom to Israel. Now the focus shifts to whosoever. There's the transition point from a Jewish focus. Now it's going to shift to a Gentile focus. Last time I looked at the issue on this unforgivable sin and the question, have I committed it? And the answer was, no, you can't commit it. We can't commit it. It was, first of all, a historical sin. It was something that could only take place when Jesus was on the earth presenting the kingdom, presenting his credentials as the Messiah to Israel. And the Pharisees not only said no, they said, you are getting your power from Satan. And they attributed to God the power of Satan. And this was the height of blasphemy, which is to revile or slander someone, in this case, the Holy Spirit, saying that Jesus real source of power was Satan, and that was the sin, this unforgivable sin. But it wasn't a personal sin. It was a sin of the nation, because as a nation represented by their leaders, uh, they were... Uh, they rejected the offer of the kingdom and the Messiah. And we learn from that something that many of us don't like so much, and that is that a nation's destiny can be determined by its leaders. Go figure. And the decisions our leaders make are often decisions that impact us, whether we like it or not, and whether we agree with them or not. And so I gave this little chart that in most of the Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we have an initial stage of the offer of the king and the kingdom, and then this reaches this crisis point of the rejection of the king and the kingdom, and after that there is a shift that occurs, and the focus now is on preparing the disciples for their future ministry in the church age, and the kingdom takes a back seat and is not mentioned again, uh, this culminates in 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 the the crucifixion, death, and burial, uh, and resurrection of the King, and that precedes the coming of the Church Age. That's your basic uh, structure that takes place. In Matthew 12, for the first time, we see the hint, the foreshadowing. Twice we're going to, we've seen it once. We're going to see it again. We see the the um, for the first time, to mention that Jesus' ministry is going to end in death. Up to this point, that wasn't uh, presented. Now we see that that this has this shift has taken place. And trust me, this is really important for interpreting this whole passage. There are a lot of different views you'll run into from different people. Some people say that this un, the unpardonable sin is a sin of unbelief. And like I said last time, well, how many times do you have to disbelieve the gospel? The Apostle Paul disbelieved the gospel dozens if not hundreds of times so if it's disbelieving the gospel how many times do you have to disbelieve 10 20 30 40 50 60 uh what what is it uh and and furthermore if it's uh, disbelieving the gospel then why this shift that takes place matthew as we see is the 
is the gospel account that gives the most information, as we'll see as we continue to study uh, this morning. The focus here is really on the nation. It's not on individual. The illustrations and what happens at the end of the chapter all must be understood as representing this shift that takes place where Jesus is saying, I've given it to you, the Jews. I've offered it and offered it and offered it and offered it, and you keep rejecting it. You keep turning it down, and you keep... um, uh, focusing on superficial things. This is it. This is the turning point. It's over with. I'm now going to the Gentiles. So we see this shift that takes place here. Matthew 12:14 was the first hint that that Jesus would die. The Pharisees began to plot as to how they would uh, would might destroy him. Then I focused on this citation in Matthew chapter 12. Uh, verses uh, 18 through 21, which is a quote from Isaiah 42, 1 and 2. And this introduces a couple of uh, ideas that are important. And I'm amazed, having gone through and read and read and read a lot over the last several weeks in different commentaries, I haven't read anyone, um, whether I agree or disagree generally with their position or not, Good guy, bad guy, wrong guy, right guy, doesn't matter. I haven't seen anybody who made the observation that the first thing this quote introduces to us is the Holy Spirit. If you read the Mark account, which we'll look at in just a minute, the Holy Spirit's brought in in terms of the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit with no foundation. You know, in law, in a courtroom, you have to lay your foundation before you bring in any evidence or judgment, and there's no foundation. There's no mention of the Holy Spirit. Only in Matthew do we have from this quote from Isaiah 42 the first mention of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is the source of power for the for the Messiah, and God says he puts his spirit upon him. And the other part of this quote is it shows the significance of the shift to the Gentiles. Uh, verse 18, and the last line states, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles, showing that there's this shift that takes place. In verses 19 and 20, he won't quarrel or cry out. In other words, uh, God is a gentleman. Messiah is a gentleman. He's going to offer it. He's not going to force you. Uh, if you don't uh, accept the offer of the kingdom, he's not going to get in a tussle in the streets over it and try to uh, arm twist you into the kingdom. He's not going to quarrel or cry out. Uh, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. He's just going to quietly withdraw. Uh, he's not going to force the issue at the first coming. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. All of this is imagery related to the fact that he's not going to force the issue at that time. He's just going to say, you don't want me? Fine, I'm out of here. I'm going to the Gentiles. And that's the last verse in his name, Gentiles will trust. This is a fulfillment of prophecy, as I pointed out in Deuteronomy 32:21, that God foresaw that he would be going to the Gentiles. The other thing I brought into this as background is that the Bible talks about two categories of forgiveness. And this passage, this issue of the baptism by, I mean, excuse me, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is couched in terms of forgiveness. There will be no forgiveness for commission of this sin. But the Bible talks about two categories of forgiveness. The broad category is forgiveness of sin so that you can have eternal life with God in heaven. The second category is forgiveness of sin where you are pardoned of the consequences of sin in time, okay, in your life, that God uh, allows you by grace to continue without reaping the consequences of the sin that you have sown in this life. 
And so this is the issue in this passage because it's not talking about individual justification and forgiveness. It's because when we look at the context, it's not the individuals that reap the consequences, although they do. It's the nation that reaps the consequences, and it's a shift in God's plan for the nation that is what comes out. So it's not the first category, although that's sort of the first blush response of everybody. You read the word saved. How many people here, when you hear the word saved, you think going to heaven? But most of the time in the Bible, the word saved doesn't mean go to heaven. It's used in terms of being delivered from the uh, uh, presence or the power of sin in your life today. Uh, as it's used in Romans, it's never used once in Romans to refer to ju- as a synonym for justification to refer to eternal salvation. In passages like Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it clearly refers to justification. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But in other passages, like in Philippians 2, you have the command to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's talking about what we call phase 2 salvation, being saved from the presence of sin or the spiritual life and and spiritual growth. Colossians 2.13 talks about forgiveness, and as I have translated this, as you see on the screen, we see that uh, we were made alive together with him, the middle of verse 13, because he has, and the idea there is he's already forgiven us or wiped out, that's what the word means, to cancel a debt, to wipe something out, because he's forgiven us of all trespasses. When did that occur? Not when we trusted in Christ. When did that forgiveness occur? Read the text. It's so important when we look at those participles. When did he forgive us? When did he wipe out the debt against us, those trespasses? When he wiped out, Paul further explains it with that participle at the beginning of verse 14, when he wiped out the handwriting of requirements or the certificate of debt that was against us, which was contrary to us. That was the indictment against us as children of Adam born dead in our trespasses and sins. When was that sin penalty wiped out? He took it out of the way when he nailed it to the cross. Not when you believed, but when Christ died on the cross, that canceled the debt. But you're still born spiritually dead. You're still born unrighteous. That Those two problems only get resolved when you trust in Christ as Savior. So here we have this idea that, that the sin debt for every human being in all of history is wiped out by Christ's death on the cross. So that includes every sin, including the sin of unbelief. Now, if, if we're talking about individual, uh, individual justification, but Matthew 12, as I pointed out last time, doesn't do that. So what is it? Summary. Jesus is announcing to Israel the final straw related to their rejection of him as Messiah. This is it, last chance, no do-overs, don't get a second chance, third chance. Actually, this is like the 1,589th chance, and this is it, done deal, there's no chance whatsoever. And even in the middle of this chapter, he gives them another chance. This uh, blasphemy, therefore, is related specifically to a historical event and is unique to the life of Jesus. You can't do it today. Nobody can do it today. It was only that one time, one issue in one country, and that was it. And the judgment is a national judgment, not a personal judgment, and was fulfilled in A.D. 70 when God took Israel out. That's the background of blasphemy. I spent a lot of time last week going through those blasphemy passages 
in the law that the root cause of Israel going out under divine judgment, being taken out of the land in 722 when the northern kingdom was defeated by the Assyrians in 586, when the southern kingdom was uh, defeated and wiped out by the uh, Chaldeans, by the Babylonians, those events were the result of blasphemy. That wasn't eternal punishment, that was temporal punishment. So the background of the punishment for blasphemy is temporal punishment, not eternal punishment. Again, that fits our context. Now, somebody asked me this question this last week. This is why I went back and did all this extensive review. What about Mark 3? Mark 3 is a very abbreviated version of this event. There are several features of it that are different, but I just want to focus on one thing, because when you read this, it looks like it's talking about sin and eternal individual salvation, doesn't it? Oops, maybe I was wrong. This is really a tough passage. Look how it's translated in the New King James. Jesus said, I Surely I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men. So sons of men, that's a broad term. That's everybody, not just Jews. All sins will be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they may utter, but... He who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation. Wow, that sure sounds like he's talking about individual justification, doesn't it? Well, we have a couple of things we need to look at here in order to properly understand this, this, uh, uh, this particular passage. Uh, the first thing that we need to uh, look at is, is this really an accurate translation? Is this really an accurate translation? Because if that's not an accurate translation, then it doesn't mean what it appears uh, what it appears to mean. And it could mean something else completely. The other thing is, uh, once again, when it introduces forgiveness, people immediately want to read into this this statement that forgiveness means individual just justification. And so we have to look at this uh, more specifically and answer these two questions. First of all, in terms of the translation, the first phrase that we need to understand is this phrase, never has forgiveness. Never has forgiveness. And when we look at this in the Greek New Testament, it literally says, does not have forgiveness to the age does not have forgiveness to the age or into the age. Now, that is a very different concept than what it comes across in the New King James Version translation. And I would suggest that uh, that the phrase into the age also has a connotation, according to uh, several commentaries, of into this age. Now, Jesus was in a particular age. Now, he's saying into this age, and what he's talking about, therefore, is a limitation on this forgiveness that is related to human history. So the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, if this isn't talking about eternal forgiveness, it's talk, it could be talking about uh, temporal forgiveness, which is clearly the focus in the Matthew passage. That could fit if we have a correct translation of this phrase. Uh, it's not never has forgiveness, but does not have forgiveness into this age. And it could have the sense of never has forgiveness if we understand it in the fact that this is a straw that breaks the camel's back. Your rejection of me and attributing my power to the Holy Spirit means that you've, you've reached an irrevocable point. I'm taking the kingdom from you, and I'm not offering it anymore. It can still very much have that connotation. The second phrase is that little bugaboo there at the end of verse 29 that says, subject to eternal condemnation. However, there's no equivalent word in the Greek for condemnation. 
So it doesn't say anything about condemnation in the Greek. Actually, what it says is sin of the age. Sin of the age. That's the literal, just the literal translation, or eternal sin. And eternal sin doesn't necessarily have to be sin into eternity, but can still have that connotation that, that this is, there's, a, there's an everlasting consequence to this sin. You're not going to get the kingdom now. It's irreversible. It's an irrevocable decision. Now, does God ever do that? Does God ever come to Israel in the Old Testament and say, this is it, this is your last chance, uh, judgment's coming, <clears throat> judgment's coming, and there's nothing you can do to change course? Does that ever happen? Sure it did. Numbers, chapter 13, the 12 spies go into the land, they come back, 10 of them said, there's giants in the land, there's walled cities, there's too many people, we can't do it. Two people said, yes, we can. Everybody went with the people who said, no, we can't. And the result was, God said, as a result of your failure to trust me, you're not going to get the land. This generation is not going to enter the land because of your rebellion. You'll spend the next 38 years in the desert, period, over and out. You don't get to go into the promised land. The people repented. They weeped. They cried. They said, we're, we're sorry. We didn't, we didn't understand. And they tried to go to battle against Canaanites right after that. And what happened? God let them get their butt kicked. That was it. It was over with. They weren't going to get it. God had made an irrevocable decision. There's another situation that happened like that in the life of an individual. Saul, King Saul, was a believer. I think it's very clear from a number of passages. The most clear is at the end when Samuel comes back from the dead. Samuel says, you will be with me this time tomorrow in Sheol. He would be with Samuel. Wherever Samuel would be, that's where Saul would be. That would be in the place of paradise where Old Testament saints went. But at some point, Saul continued to disobey God. Year after year after year, he would disobey God. God told him to wipe out and destroy the Amalekites. The Amalekites were, were the terrorists of that generation. And he was to wipe them out and kill every man, woman, and baby, and, and kill every uh, all their livestock, all their sheep, all their goats, all their cattle, wipe them out completely. And Saul, Saul thought, hmm, not such a good idea. we got a little bit of investment here. Let's keep their money, keep their livestock, maybe keep some of their people alive and get a ransom. And so when Samuel came to confront Saul, Samuel, go, Samuel says, well, what's that bleeding I hear? What, what's going on here? And he saw Agag, the king of the Amalekites, and he confronted Saul with his disobedience. Then Samuel, uh, as a prophet, needed to correct the situation. So he uh, grabbed Saul's sword from him and turned around and hewed Agag to pieces. I just love that translation. And then he announced the judgment of God on Saul, that Saul was going to take the kingdom away from him. And when he, when he turned away from Saul to leave, Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. And Samuel turns to him and said, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. That's a reference to David who would be anointed in the next chapter. And also the strength of Israel, a term for God, will not lie nor relent, for he is not a man that he should relent. What's the point? The point is you've been given chance after chance after chance after chance, and you've, been, you've blown it, you've been disobedient, you've been rebellious, and there's no do-overs. We've reached the point of no return. We've reached the final straw on the camel's back, and the kingdom is taken from you, and it doesn't matter what you do from this point out. The kingdom is not coming back to you and your, your descendants. It's going to David. 
period, over and out. That's the same kind of thing that happens in Matthew chapter 12. Do we see other examples? Sure we do. The northern kingdom got warning after warning after warning after warning. They refused to uh, trust in God. They refused to follow God exclusively. And finally, God announced judgment on the northern kingdom, and they were taken out in 722. And from the time the judgment was announced, it was irrevocable. No matter how they turned back to God, uh, it wasn't going to work. Same thing happened in the southern kingdom. In fact, under Josiah, a good king, after uh, the judgment had been announced by Isaiah a couple of hundred years earlier, Josiah brought the people back to God. Nevertheless, when he died, they rebelled again, but the judgment had been set, and nothing could change it. The Babylonians were coming. You could hear the hoofbeats on the horizon, and uh, Israel went out under divine judgment in 586 B.C., Again, what we see is that God gives people a chance after chance after chance after chance. If you continue to uh, reject God and to refuse to obey him, then eventually you reach a point of no return, and God is going to bring judgment, not eternal judgment. You don't lose your salvation, but God is going to bring divine discipline in order to, in order to straighten things out. Now, this is what, where we are where I stopped last time, but Jesus gives them one more chance. That's great. He gives them one more opportunity to clean up their mess. And this is in verse 33. He says to them, either make the tree good and the fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by a fruit, by its fruit. So he's taking the analogy of a tree and applying it to the leadership of Israel and says that the, the fruit is what's bad. And because the fruit's bad, the heart of the tree is bad. What's the fruit? Is the fruit their lifestyle? No. You know, there's this horrible heresy that goes around the church that says if your, your, your works will show whether or not you are a believer. And that's not true. It's not true biblically. It never has been. Uh, what your works show, what, uh, here the works are your words. What the words reflect is the heresy of the Pharisees, their legalism. Their words were what? You're doing this by the power of Satan. What do those words indicate? That they have rejected him as the Messiah. Their heart is evil because they have rejected the provision of God. Their evil heart produced evil words. This isn't a litmus test for whether or not somebody is a believer in Jesus Christ or not. It was a litmus test on whether or not they had accepted Jesus as the Messiah, whether they had repented, changed from their uh, evil works-oriented unrighteous theology to a grace-based theology in following the Word of God. And then he makes it even more clear. He calls them a brood of vipers. Now, the resounding diction of the King James obscures the significance of this insult. I just love it. Jesus is really tough. He's, he has reached that point where he is going to make it very clear that they have rebelled and, and who they are. The term brood is a word for descendants, or as it's put in the Old Testament, the seed, the descendants of somebody. Vipers are poisonous snakes. So what has Jesus called them? You are the seed of serpents. Hmm, have we heard that somewhere before? 
We sure did back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when Jesus said the seed of the woman, uh, the seed of the serpent would bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, and the seed of the woman would uh, uh, wound the head of the seed of the uh, I mean, the seed of the serpent would wound the head of the seed of the, of, of the woman. And so the seed of the serpent is a term that describes those who follow Satan, those who are the real uh, dupes of Satan, those who are Satan's disciples, the devil's disciples. And Jesus is turning the table on the Pharisees here, and he says, you're accusing me of doing these works? By Satan, you're the ones who are the seed of Satan. You are the ones who are promoting Satan's kind of self-righteous, works-oriented gospel. You are the ones who've rejected the Son of God as your Messiah. You are the one who's doing the devil's work, not me. And so he did not win any friends and influence anybody that day because they are set in their negativity. He goes on and and talks about a principle, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil things. This is just a a proverbial statement, and if your heart has received the gospel of the kingdom, then you would say good things about the king, but because your heart has not accepted in your heart, you have rejected the gospel of the kingdom, you're saying evil things about the king. And then in verse 36, he says that you will be held accountable for this. I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account for it in the day of judgment. You will be held accountable for it, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. And these words condemn the nation. And then, but this is reminiscent of passages like in Matthew seven. We read and we read this, studied this in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is saying the same thing about the Pharisees that you know them by their fruit. The fruit is their words, their teaching, and it is their teaching that reveals their heresy. This isn't a litmus test for whether or not someone is a true believer or someone who is trusting Christ as Savior. This is to show the the, the error of the, the teaching of the Pharisees. Um, Matthew 6.21, also in the Sermon on the Mount, uses similar imagery. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So their focal point was completely wrong. Now, after he has indicted them in... Uh, verses 33 to 37 by demonstrating that their heart is wicked. This is the ultimate point. It's not just that their words are wicked, but it reveals the wickedness, the evil of their heart, and that they have condemned him. Then you have in verse 38, uh, some of the scribes and Pharisees answered and said, well, teacher, it's not quite so bad. We really want to have a sign from you. Just give us a sign. Now, doesn't that sound nice that they're really looking for a sign? No, it doesn't, because they've had sign after sign after sign after sign. Jesus has healed the leper, a particular type of healing that the Pharisees had taught only Messiah could do. He had given sight to the blind. Again, uh, the, the rabbis at the time had taught that only the Messiah can give sight to the blind. He had healed the paralyzed man that they had brought down through the roof in Peter's uh, uh, Peter's house. And uh, he said... Uh, 
he not only healed him of his paralysis, he said, your sins are forgiven. He claimed to be able to forgive sins. Jesus made claims that were exclusive to deity, and uh, he had shown them sign after sign after sign, miracle after miracle. He had healed numerous people who were uh, demon-possessed, and he had healed this demon-possessed man. Remember, that's the context. He had healed this demon-possessed man as an illustration to show that he, as Messiah, could deliver Israel from demonic oppression and demonic influence, uh, the result of which was that they were spiritually blind and they were spiritually mute. They were not fulfilling their purpose in God, and that was why he, the Messiah, had come. And so now he doesn't treat this as a legitimate request because it wasn't a legitimate request. They had been given more than enough information. They had been given more than enough evidence that Jesus was the Messiah. And so he answers them and says, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. First of all, he calls them the seed of Satan, and now he calls them evil and adulterous. Uh, he is not trying to win them back at this point because that's not an achievable objective. He is making sure that they understand their indictment. By adulterous, he doesn't mean sexual adultery. He means spiritual adultery. Spiritual adultery is when you are seeking after other gods, when you have rejected the true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you are seeking after other gods. And so they are adulterous because they are seeking the solution for life's problems in legalism and not in the grace provision of God. And then Jesus says, you seek after a sign, and no sign will be given you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, what was the sign of the prophet Jonah? What they are saying is, we want a sign. Uh, We want you to make fire come down from heaven and destroy the Romans. We want you to have the sun go from uh, west to east. We want you to make rivers run uphill. Uh, We want some kind of demonstration of your power and authority because what we've seen so far, just uh, we we don't want to accept that. We want you to dance to our tune. That was, if you remember the illustration back in chapter uh, chapter 11, and Jesus said, John came, I came, but they they were playing music. They wanted us to dance to their wedding march, and we didn't want to do that. They wanted us to to mourn at their funeral dirge, and we didn't want to do that. We're not marching to their tune. They need to march to our tune, and as a result of that, this conflict had developed. So he says the sign of the prophet Jonah. Well, Jonah was the prophet who was sent by God to Nineveh, and Jonah said, I hate those Ninevites. I hate those Assyrians. I'm not going to go east. I'm going to go west, and he went to uh, went down to Jaffa and hopped on a ship to Tarshish, which is modern Spain. He was going to go uh, west across the Mediterranean. And when he got out in the water, a storm came up. And the only way that uh, they were going to get out of the storm, Jonah recognized, was if they threw him overboard. So the men of the ship threw him overboard, and God had prepared a great fish, not a whale, a great fish who swallowed him up, and he spent three days in the whale. And then the whale vomited him up on the uh, on the beach. He probably looked pretty bad because he was had been in the belly of the fish. Did I say whale a minute ago? I misspoke. In the belly of the fish for three days, and all those stomach acids would have bleached him white. He would have been a real white man. He would have had white hair. He would have had white skin. He would have looked horrible, like he had just come out of the grave. How do we know that? Because there are examples of fish 
large fish that have swallowed human beings, and after uh, several hours in their belly, their gastric juices have bleached them white. So they came out of the... Um, He's, he's vomited out of, of the fish, and he walks into Nineveh, and, of course, his appearance would get a lot of attention, and he proclaimed the gospel, and the Ninevites responded. And so Jesus uses that as a picture of death and resurrection. And so that's the sign that's going to be given, given to them. Now, one other thing we should note is the nature of the Ninevites. Who were the Ninevites? They were Gentiles. So the first example that Jesus says is comes from Jonah, and he says in verse 41, the men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a great, someone greater than Jonah is here now. What's he pointing out? Jonah took the gospel to the Gentiles. The Gentiles accepted it, and the Gentiles are going to rise up in judgment against you Jews because they understood the grace of God and you didn't. In verse 42, he uses a second example. The queen of Sheba, the queen of the south. Was she a Jew or was she a Gentile? She was a Gentile. See, the point in all of this is talking about this shift from offering the kingdom to Israel to offering Jesus to the Gentiles. We're now going to go to the Gentiles. And he says, even the queen of Sheba recognized the grace offer of the gospel and the wisdom of Scripture. She came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, someone greater than Solomon is here. The point is there's this, there's this shift that, that takes place. Now, I'm not going to go through this. Matthew 16 is the same kind of uh, example. The Pharisees asked him for a sign, and Jesus said, uh, no sign, you're a wicked and adulterous generation. And then he uh, he condemns them. Now, he gives a final illustration, and I want to finish this this morning because we do have a little Mother's Day sermon within the sermon in this, and it's not going to work if we don't make it today. So he continues... He continues with the talk about this unclean spirit. Last week we looked at the fact that he used this analogy that that the strong that 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 the strong man uh, that that if a man is going to take the house, he has got to bind the strong man. How can one enter a strong man's house? This is verse 29 and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. The strong man is Satan. And what this is showing, the permanent binding of Satan doesn't come until the millennial kingdom. But when Jesus came in the first advent, he was clearly in a confrontation with Satan, and he is restricting Satan's activities. He's casting demons out of individuals in Israel to show that he and he alone can free Israel from this uh, demonic oppression. Now he comes back and talks about this same idea of casting out a demon. And he says in verse 33, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. This is Israel. Jesus has come preaching the message to repent. Uh, he, has, he has restricted Satan. They repented, but they didn't turn to him. They cleaned up their life. They got kosher, but they didn't get righteous. And so what happens is, the, he says, what happens if all you do is have a little moral reformation and not a spiritual regeneration, then what happens is that spirit's going to come back and he brings with him seven other spirits in verse 45, more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of the man is worse than the first. What's the point? The point is that because you've rejected me, when I go, uh, Satan is going to come back, and the state of Israel after this is going to be worse than the state before. You're going to go through 
complete destruction in A.D. 70. You're going to be scattered among the nations. There's going to be the rise of Christian anti-Semitism, which is one of the most horrible things that's ever happened in history. They're going to persecute you. They're going to run you from nation to nation. They're going to even get to the point where they uh, attempt mass murder, mass annihilation in the uh, in the ovens and uh, the crematoriums of Auschwitz, and they're going to seek to wipe out every Jew on the face of the earth. It's going to be much worse after this because of this decision. That's what Jesus is saying. You've had your last chance. And at this point, in verse 46, they come up and they say, Well, while he was still talking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and brother stood outside seeking to speak with him. It says, Those who are related to you are outside. Now his mother comes, this is your Mother's Day message, the mother's come because she's got to bring her unbelieving sons to hear the gospel. It's the role of the parents to evangelize the children. Now Joseph isn't there because Joseph is dead. It is the primary role of fathers to make sure your children are spiritually squared away. If the fathers are failing, then it goes to the mothers. If the fathers are spiritually divorced from the house, then the responsibility falls to the mother. But the spiritual leader in the home is the father. With Joseph gone, Mary is still hoping that these brothers, that Jesus' siblings, will figure out who Jesus really is. And so she's brought them to hear him uh, once again. And But this is used as a as a pretext by those listening, saying, look, your mother and brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. Quit condemning us and uh, quit talking about how bad we are spiritually. You need to focus on your family. And the subtext here is we're your family. You're a Jew. We're Jews. You know, focus on us. You have to take care of your own first. And Jesus' response is, well, who are my mother and my brothers? Who's my family? You've rejected me. My family are those who respond to the message. He points to the crowd to his disciples and said, here are my mother and my brothers. What he's pointing out here is that because his family, because his family rejected him, those who are his true family are those who do the will of the Father. That is, they respond to the gospel. Whosoever, this is where we see this shift. It's not just the Jew. It is whosoever will. This is summarized in John 1, 10 through 12 this way. He was in the world. Jesus came into the world, the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own. That's the Jews. That's what he's done from Matthew 1 through Matthew 12. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. They said, you're not the Messiah, you're really the devil's disciple. And they did not receive him, but as many as received him, to them gave him them the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. The shift takes place in Matthew 12. Now it's whosoever will, just as John writes in John 3.16, for God loved the world in such a way that he gave his unique son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the issue. It's not believe and do anything. It's believe, trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, and you have eternal life. It's a free gift. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. We don't work for it. We're offered the gospel again and again and again in life. But any time we respond, we are forgiven. We realize that forgiveness. The sin was wiped out at the cross. We realize that in our experience at the instant that we trust in Christ. 
We're born again. We receive the imputation of Christ's righteousness. We're declared just, and we're given eternal life. Sin is not the issue. The issue is the cross, because in John 3.18, Jesus goes on, on to say that he who does not believe is condemned already, not because of his sin, but because he did not believe in him. He did not believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to uh, look at this uh, incredibly important passage, to come to understand the spiritual truths that underlie it, the importance that your grace is extended to us again and again and again and again, and at some point that stops. Uh, just as it did with Israel many, many times in history and with individuals many, many times in history. So we are, all need to take advantage of that offer of the gospel when it's made, to, not to put it off, not to wait till next week, next year, some other time, but right now to make sure that we have trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this time to make that sure and certain. Jesus died for you. He paid the penalty for your sins. So you don't have to do anything about your sin. You have to just decide on the gospel. Are you going to accept Jesus as your Savior, believe that he died on the cross for your sins, receive him uh, into your life, uh, which is a synonym for believing in him? And this means that at that instant, you have eternal life that can never be taken from you. Father, the rest of us need to recognize that, that we often take advantage of your grace, but at some point we come under divine discipline. We need to make sure that we are not guilty of taking advantage of your grace, but recognize that you have put a responsibility upon us to walk with you, to proclaim the gospel, and to make disciples. And this is something incumbent upon every single believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied this morning. In Christ's name, amen.